Good morning. That was weak. Good morning. Thank you. Hey, I got to be honest. Uh, this sermon was hard to get ready for. Um, I mean, think about it this way. In some ways, this is like the most different sermon you're going to hear at Lake City. Uh, most times we stand up here and preach and we speak boldly and confidently because we base everything that we preach to you on the Word of God. Because in Lake City, we believe that this is the inerrant Word of God. And so we come each time and we speak from this solid platform, hanging our hat on the Word of God. Today, I have to come and explain to you why we believe that that Word of God is actually true. So very different. And I mean, on the one hand, it could have been really simple, right? Is God's, is the Bible true? Yep. All done. Let's go. But I'm guessing you were hoping for a little more than that today. If you ever come across something like this, this is by one of the critics of the Bible, Bart Ehrman. He wrote, apart from the most rabid fundamentalists among us, nearly everyone admits that the Bible might contain errors. A faulty creation story here, a historical mistake there, a contradiction or two in some other place. But is it possible that the problem is worse than that, that the Bible actually contains lies? See, when you come across stuff like that, it can rock your faith. I know it has for me, you know, over my faith journey. I grew up in the home of a pastor. My dad started the, the Psalm 1 church at Fort Lewis because he had a heart for the Psalm 1 soldiers. He wanted them to be able to hear about God in their native language. And so he started the Fort Lewis uh, Psalm 1 church. And so I grew up in, the, in a home that believed in God. We talked about God. I believed in God. It probably wasn't until high school that I, I actually understood the need to have a personal relationship, that I understood I needed to make Jesus Lord of my life and, and accepted Christ into my life and began that faith journey. But I'll tell you, it wasn't smooth. I mean, I had lots of doubts along the way. I got to college and I was a zoology major. And I can tell you that in our zoology classes, they never once talked about Noah saving the animal kingdom by putting animals on a big boat. And so I had to wrestle with creation and evolution. And, you know, thankfully I came to a place where I, you know, for me, it took way more faith for me to believe that I started from kind of this goo and eventually became me. And it was much easier for me to believe that a loving God created me. But it didn't remove all the doubts and all the places where I had to wrestle with my faith. And then I got married to Kelly and we started to have kids and started to consider, what do I really believe in? What am I going to teach my kids? I mean, am I going to drag them to church and teach them the same thing I was taught? I mean, do I actually believe these things that I'm, I'm saying I believe? And so I, and again, if that's not you, I mean, hallelujah, you know, way to go. But if you're out there and you're like, yeah, I mean, that's me. I've, I've wrestled with this stuff. Then you're in good company. There's at least one other person in this sanctuary that feels for you because that was my faith journey. Thankfully, along the way, I came across this guy named Josh McDowell. And at that time, he had been doing a lot of teaching on college campuses, had been uh, he was one of the leading voices in apologetics. 
No, that's not, you got to say sorry for things. Uh, apologetics is a branch of theology that deals with the defense of the Christian faith. And he was one of those voices that was out there talking about apologetics. And I'd, I'd heard about him. I'd heard about his book, More Than a Carpenter, and I'd read that. And I knew about uh, his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And I came across this cassette tape series, 12 cassette tapes. I may have talked about this in an earlier sermon. And yes, I know I'm dating myself. Some of you are like, what's a cassette tape? But, uh, you know, it's 12 cassette tapes, a workbook. It was hours of information, and I went through it. I went through it another time. But it was awesome because it helped me really think about those questions that I had about this faith journey that I was on. It allowed me to to really answer those questions in a way that allowed me to then, with that solid foundation, move forward. Now, it hasn't been completely smooth sailing. I mean, I, there's certainly other times I come across a quote like Herman's, and it's like, oh, what is it I believe again? But it, it's allowed me to have a solid base to continue to come back to about what I believe. And so today, what I hope to do is to offer you some truth about God's word and, and give you some things to consider. I hope to maybe dispel a few misunderstandings when it comes to God's word. But I certainly know that I'm not going to answer every question that you could possibly have on this subject. The world would uh, have us believe that this Christian faith is this faith that you have to like stand on the edge of a cliff and blindfold yourself and then just sort of jump off in this blind leap of faith. And I just don't think it's like that. I think this faith journey we're on, yes, there is this element of faith, but I think that element of faith is moving in the direction of the evidence. It moves in the direction of truth. In fact, when you think about, you know, God has told us we are to love God with our heart, soul, and mind. Like he doesn't expect us to check our brain in at the door and go love him with our heart and our soul. And honestly, for me, I couldn't have done that. Like, there's no way I could get my heart and my soul to embrace something that my mind was rejecting. So in order for me to have a faith journey, I had to bring my mind along with it. And if that's you, then you're in the right place. So we're going to talk about this book. I mean, where did it come from? 66 different books, 40 authors written over 1,500 years. But have you ever asked yourself, I mean, why this book? I mean, a lot of people have written a lot of things about God. I mean, I've written some things about God. Why isn't my stuff in here? That's supposed to be funny. Laugh. <laughs> I mean, what makes this book so special? Here's what Geisler and Nix, a couple of scholars on this subject, they wrote this. They said, a book isn't the word of God because it is accepted by the people of God. Rather, it is accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. That is, God gives the book its divine authority, not the people of God. They merely recognize the divine authority which God gives to it. In other words, what makes this book special isn't the fact that we call it the Bible and we say it's special. What makes it special is that God handed us this book. And what we have to do is recognize that authority that God gave to the pages in this book. And all that we know, all that we feel should move us in that direction. 
I want to give credit where credit is due. One of the sources for a lot of what I'm bringing to you today came from the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh and Sean McDowell. They have a brand new updated version. I would highly recommend it. Uh, I will warn you, it does not read like a novel. It reads much more like a college textbook, but it's packed with information. It's outstanding. Uh, it actually doesn't come out until October 3rd. We were at the D6 conference, so I had a chance to buy it early. Um, but it is, it, he wrote one years ago. He's had some updated versions. This is the latest and greatest. And I would encourage you to, if, especially if you're anything like me and you have those kinds of questions, it's a great source uh, for uh, answers that you might be looking for. And so a lot of what I'm going to share today comes from that. So as we consider, you know, this book and why is it so special, I want to look at a couple of different aspects of it that make it special. The first is this word canon. Comes from the root word read. Think of a measuring stick or a rod, a measuring a standard. Uh, when you think of canon, that's the, the, the thing you should think of. Uh, if you are a Star Wars geek, uh, you know, there were tons of stories being written that was part of the Star Wars expanded universe. And then finally, Lucasfilm said they had to come out with what they were considering the canon of the Star Wars uh, story so that writers would understand what is the actual canon, the standard by which we're going to write from. So in the same way that there is this canon that we call the Bible. Here's what Geisler and Nix say about that. They said, the church did not create the canon. It did not determine which books would be called scripture, the inspired word of God. Instead, the church recognized. They discovered which books had been inspired from their inception. So in other words, they, they, our job was to discover what was it that God inspired from the beginning. That's the canon. That's what we, it's not, we look at a hundred books and say, well, I think I like that one. I don't like that one. The, our job was to discover which books were inspired. We had to figure out which books did God inspire and bring to us. The, one of the, uh, questions that you have, that you might have as you think about the word canon or, or the idea of canon is, so why is it important to even establish a canon? Here's at least four reasons why it was important for the church to come up with the canon of scripture. First one is their need, the needs of the early church. As the early church was trying to get its, its foundation and get, get footing, it needed to have a standard by which to build on. And so the early church uh, had this need for a canon. The rise of heretics, uh, there were people that were opposing the teaching of the apostles, the teaching of the early church. And so there had to be this, how do you judge the, what, what is a heretic if you don't have a standard? And then there was the circulation of false writings, people that were writing things that just weren't accurate, weren't true, but based on what? Based on a canon. And then finally, missions. Uh, Randy mentioned Josh earlier. He's heading over to Niger. What do we tell our missionaries to tell others? That was the canon, the standard that they were going to go by. And so when you think about the Old Testament and the canon of Scripture, the Old Testament, I want you to think of it as a treaty document between God and his people. So as God created or God made this treaty, this covenant with his people, that covenant that he passed on through the prophets, that became the canon of the Old Testament. It's the, it's the document that documents this treaty, this covenant that God makes between himself and his people. 
When it comes to the New Testament canon, here's what Dr. Michael Kruger said. He said, three things that Christians of the early church believed. Number one, they believed that the Old Testament wasn't finished. Yes, there was a period of silence between the last prophet and the coming of Jesus, but he, the early church, believed that the old, God wasn't done with us. Number two, that God was ushering in a new covenant. They believed that there was this new covenant that God was ushering in. And the early church believed that the apostles possessed the authority of Christ. These apostles that had walked with Jesus, that Jesus had commissioned to go and share the good news, they, the early church said they speak with the authority of Christ. And so therefore, the, the, the words that they speak, that they pass on, that is the canon of the New Testament. The second thing I want to talk about when it comes to the Bible is just the fact that it is so unique. The uniqueness of the Bible. Here's what... Hal Seed, if you have not got this book, I would encourage you to get this book, The God Questions. Uh, it's the book that this sermon series is based on, our small groups are going through. It's a great book. It's, it's, worth, it's worth purchasing. Um, and you can get them afterwards down in the foyer. But here's what the author of the book, Hal Seed, says. He says, technically the Bible is not a book. It's a book of books. It's a compilation of 66 different books written over a period of 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents with a consistency of message and without contradiction. So think about this. It's written over a span of 1,500 years. Its writers come from various lands, Italy, Mesopotamia, Persia, and others. It's separated by there's, these writers are separated by hundreds of miles. They're separated by hundreds of years. The writers include kings, herdsmen, soldiers, legislators, fishermen, statesmen, priests, prophets, a tent-making rabbi, a Gentile physician, and others. They speak on topics of history, law, religious poetry, parables, allegories, biographies, personal correspondence, personal memoirs, and on and on. And in spite of that, in spite of all of that diversity, they speak with this singular theme and vision. Halseed says, without contradiction. Yes, differences, but without contradiction. Imagine today just trying to find four writers that could write without stepping on each other's toes. It's also unique in the impact that it's had. No other book in the history of the world has had the impact on culture and civilization that the Bible has had. It's unique in circulation. Literally billions of Bibles have been sold. Since the printing press in the 1450s, it's been the number one bestseller every year and continues to this day. United Bible Societies in 2012 said that their member organizations distributed over 400 million Bibles that year alone. So it's unique. It's unique in the way that it has survived through persecution and criticism. There is something that is just different about this book. And so now I want to talk about, is the Bible true? And I want to approach it from two different uh, aspects, two different angles. On the one hand, I want to say, I want to talk about the fact that, okay, so we believe that this is canon. We believe that this book is the, the document, 
tr- the treaty document between God and his people. It's the, this book is the, the document that the apostles, uh, speaking on the authority of Christ, gave to us. But that was thousands of years ago. How do we know that what they wrote is what we are reading today? So I want to talk about that. And then I want to turn our attention to, okay, we believe that what we're reading is what they wrote, but is it true? So we're going to take on those two conversations. So the first one, let's start with how confident are we in the authenticity of the Bible? Well, let's start with the, new, with the Old Testament. How did we get this unique book? And the, the simple answer is scribes. And when I say that, I don't want you to think of like a task that some guys did. I want you to think of it as a profession. In fact, one scholar said it was so important, it was considered so important by rabbis that scribes of such texts were not supposed to interrupt their work even for the duty of prayer, let alone for less significant occasions or tasks. So this was an important task that was a profession of these men to be scribes. Here's some rules that scribes had. They could only use parchments from clean animals. So they had to start with a parchment that came from an animal that was ceremonially clean. Each column had to be between 48 and 60 lines and had to be exactly 30 letters wide. First thing they had to do is they had to line it before they could write anything on it to make sure that it was straight. The ink had to be black, prepared from a very specific recipe. No word or letter was ever to be written from memory. In other words, they couldn't say, oh, I know that verse, so I'll just write it. They had to make sure that they were copying word for word the original text. The scribe had to wash himself entirely and be in full Jewish dress before he could begin his work. And then he could not write the name Yahweh without a newly dipped brush, nor take notice of anyone, even a king, while he was writing this sacred name. So this attention to accuracy and this detail that the scribes used, it it guaranteed that they would be meticulous in the work that they did so that what we have passed down would be the same thing that what was, what was originally written, this treaty document. This was confirmed in 1947 when they discovered the sea, Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe you've heard of them. These scrolls were found up in the northwest corner of the Dead Seas. The story is there were three Bedouin shepherds. They were boys, cousins, and they were playing around in kind of that mountain area. And one of the boys threw a rock into a cave and they heard this crash. So they decided they would come back the next day and they would do some exploring in that cave. And like I imagine my boys would have been, they were really disappointed when they discovered some vase that they had broken and some old scrolls in it. I mean, imagine your boys out doing exploration and they find some broken jar and there's some old books in it. It wasn't very exciting to them. Little did they know that by the end of this, there would be 11 caves that they would discover these ancient manuscripts in. Over a thousand manuscripts. Most of them were, you know, just about personal things that were going on in that community. But over 300 of them were of the Bible. In fact, they found every Old Testament book of the Bible except Esther in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Either the whole book or at least a portion of every book in the Old Testament. The most important discovery in uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls is what they call the Great Isaiah Scrolls. And the reason the Great Isaiah Scrolls were so important is 
prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls being found, the earliest copy of the Isaiah Scrolls that they had was from 1008 AD. Okay, so they have, a, they have the Isaiah scroll from 1008 AD. And when they found the Isaiah scrolls in, the, uh, in this area of the Dead Sea, it was dated at 125 BC before Christ. So understand what that, what that means. That means prior to the Dead Sea scrolls, the earliest copy is a thousand years after Jesus's birth. And suddenly they find a copy that was written a hundred years before he was born. So in one discovery, they bridged a thousand years. The obvious question is, how similar is this one from 1,100 years later going to be to the one that was written 1,100 years earlier? And you know what they found? Virtually identical. Other than some grammatical and spelling, or yeah, grammatical and spelling differences, virtually identical. See, right now you should all be going, wow. I mean, they didn't have copy machines. Like, there wasn't Xerox machines. I mean, these guys, they were copying things. I mean, imagine I start a piece of paper down here, and I, I have you copy it to the next person, the next person, you know, kind of that old telephone game. What do you think we'd have by the time we got to the back corner? This was copied over 1,100 years, and when they look at it 1,100 years later, it's virtually identical. Which, again, gives us great confidence that what we are reading is what God initially laid down as this treaty document between him and his people. When it comes to the New Testament, with the New Testament, we talk about historical reliability because the New Testament talks about history. It's talking about things that took place in time and space. So we test it the same way that we would test any historical document, the reliability of it. Historical reliability depends on three main factors. The first one is the time between the original document being written and the manuscripts that you have. How much time is between? Because obviously if you have something that's a year uh, from a year ago, you, your chances of it being accurate are better than something that was from a thousand years ago. The second, uh, second test is number of manuscripts. The more manuscripts you have, the more you can test the accuracy of the manuscripts versus the original. And then the, obviously the quality of the manuscripts is third. And that's just, can I actually read it or am I kind of having to guess what it says? And here's the thing, by those standards, there is no comparison. The New Testament has no rival. Of course, the critics will argue. Here's an example. When you look at, for instance, the, the time gap issue, number one, that first test. Take, as an example, the dating of the four Gospels. Remember these four Gospels, they took place in time and space. They're based, they're based on the reports of these Gospel writers. There was an early church father, Arrhenius, who said that Matthew composed his Gospels while Peter and Paul were preaching the Gospel and founding the church in Rome. Well, the only time we know that Peter and Paul were together in Rome was the early to mid-60s. And critics would say there's no way. There's no way they could have done that in the mid-60s. And here's why. They would quote Matthew 24.1. Here's what Matthew 24.1 says. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one left, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So here's the point of all this. The reason the critics 
are rejecting that this was written in the 60s isn't factual. It's because they don't believe in the supernatural. Because the temple was torn down in 70 AD. So there's no way Matthew could have written about the tearing down of the temple until after it happened. Because they don't believe in the supernatural. Because there's no way Matthew could know what the future held, but God does. So critics don't necessarily, aren't willing to necessarily embrace things, not because of factual information, but because of presuppositions. Here's what Evidence Demands a Verdict said. It said, even most non-Christian scholars acknowledge this and place the canonical gospels and acts securely within the first century. So when it, when you, when it comes to that first test of the historical reliability of the New Testament, the New, the New Testament passes with flying colors. When you look at the second test, the number of manuscripts, here's what Geisler and Nix said. They said, fortunately, however, the abundance of manuscript copies makes it possible to reconstruct the original text with virtually complete accuracy. In other words, there's so many copies of the New Testament manuscript that they're able to reproduce the original with complete accuracy. The number two document in all of history in terms of historical reliability is the Iliad by Homer. And here's how it matches up to the New Testament. The Iliad was written in 900 BC. The earliest copy is 400 BC, a span of 500 years. There's, they have 643 manuscripts, copies of manuscripts of the Iliad. The New Testament, by contrast, was written in AD 40 to 100, sometime in that first century. The earliest copies they have are from AD 125, a span of 25 years. And the number of copies, they have 24,000 copies, and they probably have more now. In fact, if you look at all Bible manuscripts, there's like 66,000 manuscripts that they have. And that number keeps changing because every time they do another dig, they find more evidence. So all of that to say that what was originally written, what the apostles gave to us in this book is what we are reading today. We can be very, very confident that what they wrote is what we are reading today. But that doesn't make it true. So I wanna talk now about, but is it true? And I want to offer four pieces of evidence that don't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, but what they do is they begin to move us in a direction so that our brain can join our heart and soul in worshiping the Lord. First piece of evidence I'd offer to you is just the reverence that these scribes took when it came to copying the Word of God. There was a Star Trek episode, that original Star Trek show. I'm old enough to have grown up watching that, that show. And uh, I remember one of the episodes that they had was about the Enterprise coming to this planet that had people that loved to imitate things. And so they showed up at this planet and the storyline was that 100 years before the Enterprise got there, uh, another ship had been there and they had made the mistake of leaving behind a copy of this novel about the 1920 gangland scene in Chicago. And so 100 years later, the Enterprise shows up and they come down and guess what? The entire planet has imitated this book about the 1920 Chicago gangland scene. And so critics would have us believe that basically what happened was they chose some writings 
and they made that the Bible, and now we are imitating what they chose. And I would tell you, one of the evidences for me that I look to is they would not have taken the reverence that they did to copy things down the way that they did if it was some novel left behind by some spaceship. The reason that they took that reverence, the reason that they, they took such care in copying every single word down and copying it down accurately was because they understood that this was the treaty document between God and his people. Second piece of evidence I would point you to is just archaeology. I've mentioned some of that already. But understand when it comes to archaeology, as with most of this discussion, we avoid words like prove and and proof. Instead, we talk about things like consistent with, corroborates, commensurate with. In other words, this evidence of archaeology should move us in a direction of truth. It should move us in the direction where we can believe the words that are written. Why is archaeology important? First John 1 says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In other words, the Apostle John saying, the things we're telling you, these are things we saw, we touched, we were there. They happened in real time and space. So if these things happened in real time and space, then archaeology should start digging up and we should start seeing those things, which is exactly what's happened. Of course, if you're anything like me, maybe you're sitting there going, oh no, what if they dig up something and it disproves all this stuff I believe? Guess what? You can relax. The more they dig up, the more it confirms the things that we believe. Think of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Another example is they had this archaeological dig at Tel El Safi in Israel. This, this uh, location is where the ancient Philistine city of Gath used to be. And in 1200 BC, before Christ, the city of Gath was this border town between Philistia and Israel. And if you read in Judges and 1 Samuel, you'll see the conflict between Philistia and Israel. One of those stories is the story of Samson. Maybe you remember Samson, big guy, strong, long hair, had trouble with women. But the Bible says at the end of his life, they chained, he gouged out his eyes and they chained him to two pillars, columns. It says that he knocked the columns down, bringing down this, this temple to their god Dagon. And the Bible says that in his final act, he killed more people than he did his entire life. Well, at this ruin in this ancient city of Gath, they uncovered ruins that the chief archaeologist, Dr. Aaron Meyer, referred to as a match to that design that's described in the book of Judges. They also found pottery shards with names similar to Goliath written on them. Goliath was from Gath, and his name is not a Semitic name, but of Philistine origins. Again, these things don't prove the Bible, but they are consistent with. They move us in a direction where our head can join our heart and soul. Another piece of evidence I would point you to is prophecy. The prophets spoke for God. They were God's mouthpiece. God spoke through the prophets, his prophet Moses. He spoke through the prophets. But the Bible also offered a test for prophets. How did you know that a prophet was really a prophet from God? The test was simply this. You had to be 100% accurate. If you were ever wrong, you were to be killed. Tough deal. 
Well, there were hundreds of prophecies that were made about the coming Messiah. And according to Hal Seed in the book, The God Questions, he said 332 of those prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. Here's what's interesting. According to Peter Stoner, he's an academic in science and math, he says, the mathematical probability of one man fulfilling eight of those prophecies. So we're talking about probability, which for some of you, you're probably thinking, ah. But the probability of one man fulfilling eight of those prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. What is 10 to the 17th power? It's a big number. He uses the example, if you covered the state of Texas with silver dollars, you would have a pile two feet deep. So if you took one coin and you marked it and threw it and stirred it up in the middle of that pile of silver dollars, and then you, blind, you, you sent a blindfolded man out into that and said, hey, pick one. The chances of him picking the one that you marked is one in 10 to the 17th power. So that's the, op that's the probability of one man fulfilling eight of those prophecies. Jesus fulfilled 332 of them. So prophecy points us in this direction where we can believe in the, in the validity of scripture. And then the fourth evidence that I would offer you is that Jesus validated scripture. He validated the law, he validated most of the prophets, he validated the ancient writings. For example, when the, when the Pharisees cornered him about marriage, he quoted Genesis 2 and 3. When he was being tempted in the desert, he quoted the Old Testament. When the rich young ruler came and said, how do I inherit the kingdom? He said, he, what did he do? He said, what are the commandments? Or take this from Luke 11, verse 51. He said, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So listen, I don't know if you believe in the creation story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, but Jesus did. And I don't know if you believe in all of the prophets of the Old Testament, but Jesus did. And so Jesus validating scripture is one of the evidences that we have that again, allow us to move in this direction of believing the authenticity and the truthfulness of scripture. And then I would say, because this question comes up, so is the Bible written by God or is it written by men? And the answer I believe is it was written by men inspired by the Holy Spirit. In other words, some people are wondering like, so like, are they robots just writing things down? And I don't believe that. I think that's why you get some different writing styles. You get different perspectives of the same story because they're writing from who they are, but they're writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, can we prove it 100%? Of course not. But all of the evidence moves us in this direction where we can be confident that what we are reading is not only accurate, but it is true. So what do we do with all of this? Next steps. First thing I would say is decide what you believe about the Bible. And if you're here and you're one of those that goes, I just don't know if I believe it. Great, keep coming. Keep coming and keep asking those questions. There's nothing wrong with, with, with trying to figure out what you believe, but I would say, be willing to look into it further. Be willing to ask questions. If you have kids, 
know that we, ins- we put on the insert, there's also a digging deeper. And now it's intended so you can go home and around the dinner table or in the car, you can have some questions. You can dig deeper into this conversation. I, I know there's, there's no way that I'm here today to answer every question you've ever had about the Bible, but I hope it at least moves you in a direction where you're interested in finding out more. Second thing is read the Bible. Novel idea, right? If you don't have a reading plan, get on a reading plan. Read God's word. Especially if you're sitting here today, you're going, you know what? I do believe this is God's word. Well, if it's God's word, then read it. Read it. If this book is true, if this is truly the inspired word of God, then it should affect our lives. It should impact our lives. It should inform our life. And then finally, defend the Bible. And when I say that, I mean with, grace, with graciousness, right? I'm not talking about running out there in a caustic way and defending the Bible. I'm talking about defending the Bible in a very loving way. And, you know, beginning with yourself. I had to defend the Bible with myself, first of all, and my own doubts. And so look into that. But then be willing and be ready to offer a defense. First Peter 3.15, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I think answers in Genesis have this one right. They have this cartoon that uh, shows kind of the battle going on, and there's all these social problems that we are fighting, which I'm not, they're important and we need to address them. But meanwhile, the opposition is basically knocking out the foundation of all that we believe by attacking the word of God. Because if this crumbles, if this truly isn't the word of God, then all that we are building it on begins to crumble as well. But if this is true, if this is solid, and this is what we are building our castle on, then it's on solid ground. So uh, that's why I believe it's important that we are ready to defend the Bible, at least in our own heart, and then certainly in in a loving manner with those around us. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your word. And thank you that it has stood the test of time. And thank you that uh, we are able to, to read today your inspired word. And Lord, I pray for every person here that God is, even as they hear these these words and this message, God, that that, uh, you would be speaking to them directly, that by your Holy Spirit, they would hear truth. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us would leave here different for having been here today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the impact that it has had on my life. I thank you for the impact it has had on my family's life. And I thank you for the impact it has had on so many others. And I pray, Lord, that impact for everyone. So thank you. We love you. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.